Welcome back to RUF. I'm glad you're here uh, this evening. We've been doing a study titled The Gospel in the Old Testament. We're looking basically at how the whole Testament, the Old Testament and basically the whole Bible points us to Jesus. He is the center of history. He is the center of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a story. The Bible is a story about Jesus. It's not about us. We've looked uh, at how Abraham uh, points us to Jesus, how Joshua points us to Jesus. Tonight we're going to continue looking at the life of Abraham. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14, not 1 through 19. And so sorry if your outline uh, is wrong. Uh, The correct verses are 1 through 14. I've always hated standardized tests. Who else in here is with me? And the reason I think I've hated standardized tests, things like the ACT and SAT, is because I'm terrible at them. I've never been a great test taker. And the bad news is most every profession and most every grad school that you want to get into requires some sort of test. To get into med school, there's the MCAT. To get into law school, there's the LSAT. To become a CPA, you take the CPA exam. If you want to be a minister like me, you pass, you have to go through ordination exams. And all of these tests, for the most part, test what? They test our academic uh, abilities and knowledge. They test our IQ or our knowledge of a particular subject or area. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at this evening, we're going to see another kind of test. And it's a test that I don't like very well either. In the passage, Genesis 22, God doesn't test Abraham's IQ But as we're going to see, he tests his OQ, or his FQ, his obedient quotient, or his faith quotient. I think you'll see what I mean as we read Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's holy and inspired word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I, he said. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled up his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Father, where is the, well, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself 
the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of what God, which God had showed him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Father, if we're honest... uh, this passage, one that we're probably quite familiar with in this room. And we read it and it does nothing but lead us often to a boring yawn. We need help, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we need you to come into our hearts and to take this word, melt our hearts with it, help us to look at it afresh as if we were reading it for the first time change us, transform us, convict us, lead us to repentance, but also show us Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Our passage tonight is considered one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. Many have said that it is the high point of ancient literature. Now, when I say that it's the high point of ancient literature, or the greatest story in uh, one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean that this passage is more inspired than any other, or more holy than any other passage. But it is considered a high point by many because of the story's detail, because of its agony and passion, and its amazing conclusion. But before we dig in and start looking at the details of our passage, we've got to look at the context. Look with me at verse 1. What does verse 1 say? After these things is how the passage starts. That should automatically lead us to say what? After what things? Well, it's pointing us back to chapter 21 and what's happened there. And if you look in your Bible in 21, we see that finally... Isaac is born. That is something that has been promised to Abraham and to Sarah who was barren since Genesis chapter 12. The child of the promised has arrived. And that is great news. Sarah has born a son in her old age. This is huge. Big stuff right at the beginning of chapter 21. Then we get this short story about Abraham's successes. Things are going very well for Abraham as far as business is concerned and others around him start to get afraid of his power. And so they seek to make a treaty with him. 
Abraham is finally on top of the world. He's a good businessman. They finally have their promised son. He's successful. What possibly could go wrong, right? And then we read these chilling words. God tested Abraham. Now let's be clear. Testing and tempting are two different things. Testing means that God is about to show and prove to Abraham the full extent of his faith and his love for him. And he's going to do that by calling Abraham to give up the unimaginable. And so the question that we're going to look at this evening is how do we follow God when He calls us to give up the unimaginable? And we follow God when He calls us to give up the unimaginable. Number one, if you got an outline, by releasing our idols. Look at verse 2. God reveals the test to Abraham. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, can you imagine? We read over that. He shows him this test, and the test is just absolutely excruciating. Don't just read over it. Think about what that must have been like when Abraham heard those words. Here's this promised son. And God is asking him to take him up the mountain and sacrifice him. I can tell you, being a parent of three daughters, I can't even hardly read that section. I can't get my mind around what he's being asked to do. It's impossible almost for me to go there with my own children. So what exactly is God asking of Abraham? Some have thought that God has completely lost it here. Some scholars think that this is irrational, insane, that God has lost His mind and that He's crazy. But as awful and terrible as this seems, it makes sense. And it makes sense if you look at the text. Because as you look at the passage, you expect what when we read it? We expect Abraham to push back against God. You expect Abraham to argue with God and say, may this never be, and refuse. But Abraham, the flow of the passage indicates that Abraham what God is asking him to do. God is not asking Abraham to murder God is asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in worship. And there is a huge difference. You see, the controlling principle in this passage is that God owns Isaac's life. Back in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the firstborn was forfeited to God as a picture of God owning everything. Not only that, this was a picture of God calling in Abraham's debts for the sin of his family. And so this was a picture of justice. It was entirely appropriate 
of God to ask this of Abraham. The issue was, is he was asking it immediately and without substitute. Each firstborn son's life was considered a forfeit, but it was often by it was redeemed by the sacrifice of an animal instead of the son himself. And so it was a picture of the reality of God's ownership over the boy. And so if God had asked Abraham to sacrifice his wife Sarah, of course God would have never asked that. But Abraham wouldn't have done it. Why? Because it wouldn't have made any sense to him. It wouldn't have made sense because he would have known that God would never ask that and so it couldn't be God's voice. And so Abraham would have refused to do that. But when God asked him to take Isaac and sacrifice him, as painful as it was, that was something that Abraham knew. And you get the sense from the passage. He knew that it was just and right and that it was due to God. Look at verses 3 and 4. Abraham obeyed the test. I mean, look at this picture. Abraham rose early in the morning. He got up and saddled the donkey and he went. I mean, if it was me, I would be saying, can I get a couple more days? Maybe God, you'll change your mind. <laughs> Let's give this a week to kind of sit, uh, sit in a little bit. But if you look at the passage, there's no hesitation. Though we see struggle and anguish later, no sense of hesitation whatsoever. Abraham immediately obeys God. And can I be honest? This passage scares me to death. Why? Because I can't imagine God putting me through something like this. And I get even more fearful when I read passages like James 1, verse 2, which says, Consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds because the testing of our faith produces character. And what's interesting about that is in James, he's writing to all Christians in his letter, and he could have written and started his letter with anything. He could have started with something like love or joy or peace or grace or unity or humility. But he starts his letter with talking about tests right in the beginning, right in verse 2. And here's what we can gather from that. The truth is, tests are far more normative in the Christian life than we care to admit. You know, God wants to be closer to us. He wants our heart more than we want His. He doesn't want us to be half-hearted. He doesn't want us to be divided in our relationship with Him. He doesn't want us continually running after other lovers and seeking life in other places. And so, God will often challenge any rival in our hearts. And in order to remove that idol, 
God will often put us through a test in order to remove the idol. Why? Well, because human beings were created for one relationship, and that's a relationship with God. We were designed to be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. Augustine said this, that God made us for Himself, and our souls are restless until they find rest in Him. We were all made at the core of who we are with this God-shaped vacuum. And the problem is, when we don't fill up our hearts in the center of who we are with God, we go looking everywhere and anywhere for these God replacements, these idols, to stuff down into our hearts. All of us, including me, have these functional gods, these things that we're holding on to, things that we're unwilling to let go of. We all have these rivals that have crept into our hearts and captured our affections away from Jesus. And the real gods you serve are exposed by how you answer two questions. First, what really makes you happy? What really gives your life meaning? What makes you feel alive? And it could be anything. It could be approval. For example, you're not really happy unless you get the approval from a certain person in your life. It could be a relationship. You're not really happy or you don't feel like you have a sense of worth unless you're in a committed relationship with somebody from the opposite sex that is heading towards marriage or engagement. It could be comfort. It could be image where you're not, you don't feel like your life has meaning or you don't feel happy unless you have a certain body type. It could be wealth. It could be success. It could be work, possessions, family, you name it. If you are looking to something outside of Jesus to give your life meaning, to truly make you happy, then that reveals your real God. Another way your God's and what you're really serving is exposed is by looking at how you respond when it gets threatened or taken away from you. I had a friend this past Easter. Uh, he has a five-year-old son. Easter means lots of candies, right? It means uh, Easter baskets. And no basket is complete without the classic chocolate bunny. That was always my favorite. Well, his son... He had given him lots of candy throughout the day, and so he was sugared up, but his son wanted some of the chocolate bunny. And so he cuts off an ear, and he gives just the ear to his son. Guess what? Yes, you're right. Total meltdown. Son melts down, screams, frustrated, angry, crying, storms off to his room, slams the door, because he can't have the whole thing. His father walks back and says, Son... Is it wrong to want the chocolate bunny? And his son says, Yes, Daddy, it's wrong for me to want the chocolate bunny. And his father looks at him and says, No, it's not wrong to want the chocolate bunny. Chocolate bunnies are good. They're good things that God has given us to enjoy. He then asks his son, Is it wrong to want a good thing too much? And his son said, Yes, it is. 
He says, son, what happens when we want a good thing too much? And he said, his son looked at him without blinking an eye, says, I get ugly, daddy. And I tell you that story tonight to ask you this. What are the chocolate bunnies in your lives? What are the things that when taken from you cause you to get ugly? That will reveal your idols. That will reveal what you're really serving. Because you see, when our idols are threatened or taken away from us, when we don't get the approval we want from the person we want, or when we don't get the guy or the girl that we want, or the grade in the class that we think we deserve, then you're totally devastated. Then you're totally angry, frustrated, depressed, disappointed, or robbed completely of joy. If you respond that way, when something gets taken from you, chances are it's an idol. This passage just like the one we looked at last week, challenges us at our core about following Jesus and what that looks like. It reveals that the commands are an all-or-nothing commands. That the commitment is all-or-nothing. Tim Keller puts it nicely when he says, God must be the non-negotiable. He said, He must be the foundation for everything you do and everything you stand for. Anything else is susceptible to the altar. Everything else must be taken and sacrificed before Him. This is the kind of God He is. The alone kind. The jealous kind. The unshareable kind. And what will it feel like If you live this way, what will it feel like if you take your Isaacs to the altar? Honestly, if you live this way and you do this, it's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like you're dying. It's going to feel like you're dying when God calls you to sacrifice your career. Or when God calls you to sacrifice your idea of a spouse. It's going to feel like death when He calls you to sacrifice and to break up the dating relationship you're in because it's unhealthy and not glorifying to God. It's going to feel like death when God calls you to sacrifice your sexual lust, your pride, your possessions, your time, your me-first attitude that you have with your friends and parents, or your woe-is-me attitude that prevents you from living a life in community that is full of joy and fellowship. What is God? What is He calling you tonight to take up the mountain and lay on the altar? And are you willing to do it? Are you willing to do it? You see, most Christians simply stop here and they say, here it is, pass the test. Just pass the test. Just obey. Just do it. Just lay down your idols and be like Abraham. But the problem with that is, is that it's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not just pass the test. The point, this passage is less about the test 
And it's less about laying down your idols and more about the grace that God gives you to pass the test. And that leads us to our second point tonight. If we're ever going to follow God when He calls us to give up the unimaginable, first, we must release our idols. And secondly, we must trust the grace He provides. Look at verses 6 and 7. They walked together, it says, Isaac carrying the wood and Abraham the fire and knife. And so what we get here is that Isaac was big enough. He was old enough to carry the wood on his back. Many say he was in his teenage years, early teenage years, but he is old enough to carry his wood, and so he is old enough to resist his father. But he doesn't. He willingly obeys But he is innocent and naive because look at the question that he asked. Behold, the fire and the wood. Father, but where is the lamb? And Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What is this? Abraham doesn't know that, does he? So is he dodging the question? Well, we're not exactly sure. But later we learn in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that Abraham thought that if he were to kill Isaac, that he had faith that Abraham, in Hebrews 11, thought that God was going to bring him back to life. What's going to happen? Abraham has no idea. But the beauty of the story is this, that he still seemed to have faith that God was somehow going to provide, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. Then look at verse 10. We have this horrible, just hanging, tense moment. And Abraham stretches out his hand to slay his own son. And an angel of the Lord comes and says, Don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your own son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and then he looked and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as an offering instead of his son. And then look at what Abraham names the mountain. What did Abraham name it? Did he say, I'm finally righteous. I've finally done it. I've finally passed the test. I am good enough. No. Look at what he names it. He says, the Lord who provides. Abraham passed the test. Not through anything he had done. Not through his own power. But he looked to the provision. You see, though death was due, God provided a substitute. Isaac should have died that day on the mountain. But we see here how something else paid the penalty for the sins of Abraham's family. And surely we see it. Do you see it? Surely we see how this points to Jesus. For when we get to the New Testament, we know that many years later, there would come another. There would come the true Isaac, Jesus, who would climb these same mountains in Jerusalem. And he too would willingly go 
though he could have escaped, he too would carry his own wood up the mountain. And he too would lay on that wood to be sacrificed. But here's the difference. In the case of Jesus, it was a debt that wasn't owed. He knew no sin. He was perfect and completely righteous. It was a sacrifice, you see, not for Himself, but it was a sacrifice for you and a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And in His case, there would be no ram who would come in at the last minute to be the substitute and save Him. He was the sacrifice. Jesus was the ram caught in the thicket. The Apostle Paul gets at the meaning of the passage in Romans 8 when he says, He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also give us all things? You see, it's as we look to the cross, and it's as we look to Jesus and rejoice in the gospel and what He has done for us, that we'll ever have the joy and the courage necessary to obey and give up the unimaginable when God calls us so to do so as we're following Him. Let's pray.